Welcome to Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. Join our host, Jacob Koenig, a partner at Woodbridge International, as he gives you the knowledge to navigate complexities, embrace strategic shifts, and prepare you to sell your business with no regrets. At Woodbridge, we know how to give you the wisdom to achieve your ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Jacob Koenig. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for being here today. Uh, welcome to our podcast. I saw Jesse's bio. I'm like, my gosh, this guy knows a ton about business. It's going to be terrific just to hear his story and pick his brain and, and just hear about all the things he's learned over the years. But I think, you know, his bio really says it all. So I'm just going to give an introduction here of, you know, what Jesse's been doing the past 25 years. So Jesse, while in college, Jesse joined a uh, small technology startup. And back in 2005, while he was doing that, him and his brother uh, opened five Little Caesars pizza places. Okay. So he did that. And he sold them. All the Little Caesars have been sold. And he was a Valpac franchisee from 2008 through 2011. In 2010, him and his brother opened their first Sport Clips haircuts franchise and now they own 27 of them across five states um with plans for more acquisitions in 2014 they purchased oxyfresh carpet cleaning of st louis and they operate six territories currently him and his partners are opening locations of ideal image across the country jesse has served on the advisory councils for little caesar's oxyfresh carpet cleaning and sports clips and has been named the Sport Clips Owner of the Year, as well as the Oxyfresh Carpet Cleaning Owner of the Year. He currently serves as the Chair of Franchise Updates 2024 Multi-Unit Franchise Conference, and as the Secretary for the International Franchise Association's Franchisee Forum. Additionally, he makes regular trips to Washington, D.C. to meet with legislatures in advocacy of issues affecting business owners. So, wow. I mean, Jesse, holy cow, how much sleep do you get a day? I get a lot of sleep, Larry. Oh, you do? <laughs> Good. I don't think you're watching a lot of TV or watching a lot of Netflix. I mean, uh, you know, I, I spend probably an hour to an hour and a half uh, a night, you know, just relaxing and decompressing before bed. And I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll watch something, you know. I have, uh, I've been blessed to get enough coaching where I, I pretty much have a self-managing company. So... Um, I don't deal with day-to-day -day operations and any aspect of the company other than uh, I'm pretty passionate about recruiting. Um, Hotmetologists are uh, a finite, skilled, licensed employment base. And so if you own a salon, you're in the people business. You're not in a product business or your your people are your product. Right. And so um, the success of your salon is going to be based on the quality of the the people working in it. So that would be my one day-to-day -day obligation or responsibility to the company as I just go out there and try to spread goodwill and try to educate and encourage as many talented cosmetologists to come be a part of my salons. Right. Um, for that, I get phone calls when we have uh, unique situations and um, and I get involved in those. But other than that, Everything's really systemized and everyone's super developed to handle if it's if it's a first time event, I want to know about it. If it's a reoccurring event, I don't want to know about it. Good. Excellent. And so cosmetologists, that's for your the med spa, the ideal image. Oh, the, the med spa is all medical pros. Okay. 
Uh, and recruiting them is a lot different. They're, they LinkedIn and and a couple other things where cosmetologists typically are not on LinkedIn. Um, so right. you can them on social media or mail them a letter or go visit a school. That so it, it's different. Um, right. Yeah, right. Cosmetology that's for the hair place for the, yes. the cosmetology. Right. Got it. Yeah. And I know. Yeah. It's about yeah the experience of I get haircuts all the time, as you can see. <laughs> So, uh, but I, I, I hear that. It's people, it's the service. If the customer has a bad experience, I mean, there goes your brand, there goes the place. Yeah, it's all about the customer experience. Cool. So, how, I mean, college and then a small technology startup, did you have this vision? You know, I want to own a bunch of different franchises that complement each other, or how did that whole thing evolve for you? You know, uh, so I started working for this dot-com startup in 97 when I was still in college. And um, they were doing something much different than everyone else during that time. Our biggest competitors were all uh, trying to provide a service to K-12, K-12 schools like we were. Um, but they were trying to do it through an ad-based revenue model because in the 99s, that was the the thing is that it's free to you, kind of like how Facebook is free to the end user and ads are what support it, right? So uh, schools love free because they always have limited budgets. So we were running up against a free option where we were a subscription option. And so, you know, you had to really dig deep in your leads, find people that actually understood the difference between paying for something and getting something free. And it just honed in myself skills quite a bit. And, and then after the dot-com bubble, when a lot of the financing went away and the venture capital money went away from the technology stuff, we were the only ones left standing. So it was a great land grab as far as market share after that. So, you know, that wasn't my company. Uh, it never would be. Uh, I would never probably be allowed to buy interest in the company. So I wanted to get into something that was a non-competitive because I sincerely worked with people I appreciated and I considered good friends. So I didn't want to go in and compete against them. It just wasn't an interest of mine. And uh, like every other person, I enjoyed eating. So I thought, well, I'll just open up some restaurants. Originally, we were going to buy out a local pizzeria, a little mom and pop. And uh, I'm so glad we didn't do that because you'd probably be talking to me on this podcast with one location and one business. Uh, one of the One of the three owners of the technology startup said, you know, you need to look into a franchise. And of course, I was just like, what? what is a franchise? And so he kind of explained it to me. And he's basically he's like, they're going to teach you the inner workings of actually how to run a business. You should really do that for your first business. So, you know, we did that. And boy, we learned a lot. Very grateful. Little Caesars. Little Caesars. Yeah. yeah. Learned a lot fast. Uh, and I'm very grateful for all the mentorship that everyone at Little Caesars ever gave me and my brother on how, how to staff the the floor correctly, how to do proper inventory, like the business fundamentals that we would right. never learn because the people that we were going to buy the mom and pop from, they didn't have any of those fundamentals. It was very clear. Sure. Did you evaluate other restaurant franchise concepts before you went to Little Caesars? or um, you- Yeah, we were actually going to pick another brand um, because Little Caesars just wasn't on my radar. They were not around in the area. I never grew up with one of them. I always saw the national TV ads, so I knew of them, but never had their pizza. And um, the deal fell through because they, on this other concept because they couldn't get basically the groceries to us where we wanted to open. So then immediately, you know, I just did a search on the internet for a pizza franchise and all I really wanted was a name brand and some kind of logo or mascot at both of them. So, and um, in fact, I can remember when we um, submitted our request to to be a franchisee, they had not done anything about their new hot and ready concept. And, you know, this was like 2004 when we reached out to them. They were still talking about pizza, pizza and, and having delivery. So we got in 
been at the ground level of their reimagination of what they were and, and their explosive growth. So mm-hmm. it was a it was a great time to learn how a brand scales up, ramps up. The only negative thing I can tell you is that we were not able to grow as fast as they were able to sell. And so eventually we got boxed in into a geographic area. We could have opened up other locations like outside of our area, but managing food remotely, like having one that's hours and hours away. I could do that with a salon. It's very difficult to do that with with a restaurant. And part of it is, is that in a salon, every single employee has gone and spent a year being educated and has to pass a test and be licensed. So they already understand the importance of cleanliness and and those kind of things. And, you know, in the restaurant, if you're not in there, just making sure that everything is actually, all the checks are being done, uh, restaurants can get dirty real quick. And when they get dirty, it's not a great customer experience. And then you run into some jeopardies, you could, you know, make people sick. So in the restaurant industry, you need to have uh, someone visiting the store weekly. And right. so it, it, that was the preface of us just getting into other concepts was that we needed to because i'm fascinated by this but but you guys got did you get pretty quickly to five did you five did you open up five right off the bat or how did that we got the four really quick and then oh. a fifth spot became open and we jumped on it it was a good location okay. for, uh yeah. we got or we got to four within three years and and wow and and you were young guys and you didn't have any we were, we were in our 20s and yeah. uh I was making really good money um, with the technology startup, and I had basically saved up a hundred thousand in cash and um, enough to live on for a year or two. Right. And uh, the bank got an SBA loan against it. Opened up the first location. Did it on the on the the low end. We we bought all used equipment for the most part. We were in there hammers trying to get the construction costs down as much as possible. And yeah. um, we were very fortunate. The openings were great. Like we were yeah. making money right off of that. So we yeah. opened one up. So months later we opened up the second one 16 months later we had two more open yeah yeah wow. so we, had, we had four open before i even hit uh 29 <laughs> and you and your brother and you're still in business together you and your brother Dark. yeah well and how did that whole thing happen family brothers were you guys close growing up? Do you have complementary skills? Do you have different we, we skills? We definitely have complementary skills. We do. You know, the best way to to look at this is uh, I'm a multiplier and he's a simplifier. So, you know, he gravitates towards things of cost cutting and efficiencies. And I gravitate towards things of scaling and making the top line bigger. So if you got one person focused on trying to make the top line as big as possible and you got the other one focused on making the bottom as big as possible, it's a really good combination. Right. And the whole thing with family and business had it you know charles and i my brother were were first generation business owners i mean we come from a long line of farmers um so i mean that is a business it's a little different what we got from that teachings of growing up on a farm is self-reliance and self-accountability you know it's you have to get up and you've got to plant the, the the seed to have a crop in the fall and if you don't do it you've got no one to blame but yourself uh, so we, we learned a, a good work ethic from our family for sure excellent and you were saying that with the, with the restaurants you felt limited you said the brand was growing quicker than you guys but then again to scale restaurants you have to physically be there and that's what led you to the uh the valve pack with the hair cutting plate is that we jumped to the valve pack because um our little caesars were in a really rural market and there wasn't a lot of marketing options so we just looked at what was another marketing option so we did that and you know we started that so you 
$5 large pizzas does extremely well in a recession. Trying to get small businesses to do additional advertising during a recession can be a challenge. So I learned an awful lot in Valpac in my three or four years with them. You know, we were always able to to at least break even or turn a profit, but uh, it was a struggle. But what was really interesting was I was going out. Right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, because you started that in 2008. Yeah. Wow. We all know what happened then. Yeah. But- uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Uh, yeah. But what was what was interesting was uh, I got to go out and interview basically all these small business owners and learn about their business to see if yeah. Valpac was a good fit for them or not. And you know, just through conversations, you start to learn what the margins are. You know, uh, and. Basically, to summarize the next two concepts I jumped into, I was dealing with local salon owners and local carpet cleaners that uh, didn't understand the value of marketing and how to actually track your results from it to see if it was a good investment or if it was a cost, right? Um, So that just immediately made us go right into the salon world because we just saw that they had no understanding of how true marketing went. We understood operations from the restaurant side and um, that's been a very successful brand for us. I haven't looked at the most recent but at one point, I, you know, my brother and I had six or seven of the top 10 biggest grand opening weeks. Yeah. And it, the reason is, is because we come from the restaurant business. And when a new restaurant opens up, it's the biggest, hottest thing in town, especially in rural markets. And yeah. so we just said, well, why don't we open our salons like that? Over, overstaffed, overtrained, and overmarketed. Overmarketed to have that big bang, the big yeah. bang. Yeah. And how many of the hair cutting places do you have? We've got 27 right now. And yeah. I, I would love to have 50 a year from now yeah. if I could find uh, owners that are ready to sell at a price that makes a lot of sense. So I think, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot about what's the biggest frustration uh, in business. And I don't have any internal frustrations like, you know, we if we have a hiccup, it's pretty easily addressed and we don't see that hiccup again, at least for a very long time. But, you know, we'd like to grow much faster than we can. We're very thankfully, we're pretty cash heavy and we would love to buy more locations of all of our concepts. But the problem is, is that we're at this teeter point where people are thinking their business is worth more than it is, and they're not ready to get out. So eventually that'll change. But, you know, I I would say on average, a good price for both the seller and the buyer is about three and a half times earnings for a sport clips. We'll do that all day. When it gets into five, five and a half times earnings, uh, I'm better at looking at other concept from scratch. Sure. And the sport clips... How, how, what's the physical layout? How many square feet roughly? And no, I, they could be in all shapes and sizes. I think an ideal would be about 1,400 square feet. Okay, 1,400. And how many cosmetologists are in there? Like 1,400. How many of them do you have? Well, you know, on your roster, because you're open seven days. And they're extended hours. So sure. I have some locations that are up to 23 full-time stylists, and I've got some that are the, uh, the market and where we're staffing. Sure. Got it. And, and with the sport clips, are you are you an area? Do you own a territory or how does it work with the franchise? Will they give you more geography or? Your franchise agreement gives you a, a protected trade area, and that normally is one to three miles. So um, a bulk of our locations are in rural tertiary markets where we're the only game in town for sport clips. So you could say it's my territory, but it's just by default that the, the community isn't big enough to support two. Um, sure. And then we have, we have locations like we we have about half the sport clips in the St. Louis DMA. And so, you know, we share that area with a couple other owners. Okay, got it. And the ones you've acquired, I mean, are there any 
that are regular haircutting places and you make them a franchise, they're not successful? You know, in the franchising world, your branding is probably one of the most important things. And it's really tough uh, when you have a brick and mortar concept where you can go in and buy a competitor out and turn it into what you're doing. You're you're just better off finding your own location. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, so you have the sport clips. You have your um, your med spas. What other businesses at this point do you have? What other concepts do you have? The carpet cleaning concept, clips, and ideal image are the three concepts we have right now. Got it. How are you trying to balance your time and attention, Jesse? How do you try to do that with the different well, clients? The ideal image is more of an investment at this point. We don't have a whole lot to do with the day to day operations. Uh, they are our employees, and we have to handle you know HR, and we have to handle payroll and things like that. But as far as because we're doing medical procedures. We've got doctors that oversee them. And uh, I'm not going to second guess that because that's what they do for a living. And they have the certifications and credentials that make it so I want to listen to what they have to say as far as how procedures should be done and operations. But so that one is more of like, like a passive investment for us at this time. Um, I handle all the operations for the sport clips and my brother handles the operations for the Oxy Fresh Carpet Cleaning. Got it. And the ideal image, are, are you are you like the franchisor or are you No, it's a it's a it's a joint venture between okay. the two. The best way to, to to explain it is it's a relationship that most hotel franchises have with their franchisees. Okay. A, a lot of times like Ritz Carlton is a is a franchise. Uh, the Ritz Carlton company will actually run the location for a management fee okay. and the royalty. Uh, okay. So they're going to on the top and the bottom in that situation. Okay. And then someone is the investor in that property. Yeah. It's very, very similar to that. Got it. You know, you mentioned um, because of the way you've set up your life and your businesses, you had a lot of coaching early on. Was that right from the get-go as soon as you had the Little Caesars or? No, no, no. I I stumbled around aimlessly for a good five or six years. Yeah, no. In fact, I could tell you the predicus of it. It was uh, I was talking to someone that I was buying my business insurance from, mostly like life insurance bill loans that we were taking out and things like that. And, uh, you know, he he, he was a little bit older than me, but still in my eyes, still a young go-getter. And I was complaining about the lack of mentorship opportunities where we were living. Like, you know, everyone else, if if they're close to my age and they're doing really well, it's because they've inherited something from their parents. Uh, there wasn't like what I call first gen, right? And uh, he's like, well, you know, I'm part of this coaching program. You would really like it. It's up in Chicago. It's called Strategic Coach. And uh, it is a great organization for the entrepreneur. It's not something meant for a W-2 employee per se. It's not meant for the CEO of a company. It's meant for the founder, the the actual entrepreneur. Uh, because Everything about that is not about actually coaching you how to run your business. It's about actually having clarity and removing clutter out of your life. Right. And that is, that's the one coaching system you... Did you do any others, Jesse? Or? Uh, recently, I, I've been in, involved in uh, Genius Network, which they affectionately call it the 25K Club because that's how much it costs a year to be in it. But that is a you know, entrepreneur only to its mastermindish, And it, it's it's with a flair of, instead of re- reducing uh, complexity like strategic coach, it's, it's more about uh, marketing sales-driven stuff. So okay. it's not just that. It, it falls into like, what are you doing with your free time? What's the best book you've read? You know, yeah. think, but it's about entrepreneurs getting up and spending 10 minutes a 10 minute talk talking about something that they're really good at so you sold the little caesars because 
We sold those at the end of 2021. Oh, uh, with you, oh, you had them for a while? Yeah. We had Little Caesars for almost 20 years. Yeah. Oh, you held on to them. Okay. But it's right. But in terms of your next growth, you said this is kind of, we're going to be maxed out here. So that's how you got into the valve pack. Then you learned about the carpet and then you learned about the hair. Okay. I got it. Yeah. So we, we sold the Little Caesars. We got uh, what I thought was a really good price for it. Um, okay. It was, it's good timing for that brand. It was coming up out of pan- the pandemic and we've never had dine in anyway so you know the, okay. the whole restaurant industry moved to carry out and take out which is the only thing we've ever done and uh and then we actually because of third-party delivery apps you know now we had the delivery function too so the brand was on an upswing and we just said hey you know you want to sell on an upswing not a downswing we got, sure. we got well, it was a great price and we parlayed that right into the ideal image medical spas got it got it got it so so that decision was driven by Pretty, it was a financial decision, for the most part. Well, it, you know, we had five locations. We didn't have an interest in buying out any of the other locations that were in the area. And so it was, do you hold on to this great brand that you've got five locations for? You're making money on it, but you're not going to be able to 10 exit and go to 50 locations like I could with, with Sport Clips, right? So right. it's just a matter of like... Let's let's drop some of the the clutter and right. so really with that it, it really about the concept everything that I can stake as a something I own or uh, have accomplished is because of that ne- initial investment in store one back in my twenties yeah, yeah. so. Very, very grateful for the brand. It was just uh, after twenty years, you you move on. Sometimes. Sure, 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 sure. And and Jesse, did you um, did you use somebody to market that for you, or did they- yeah, we we used a broker? And how was that experience with the broker? A lot easier than trying to buy a business without a broker because we've right. done that. Yeah, it's right. a lot easier because the, the broker kind of walks both sides through, you know, the process and, um, you you know, your point of contact is always someone who's not emotionally involved with the deal. So when we've bought uh, businesses from uh, other franchisees, there's always a lot of emotion in there. And, you know, most of the time it's okay, but sometimes it's not. Uh, where this was just like, here are the clear expectations and right. this is... This is a market fair price. Um, so the seller thought that, or the buyer thought they were getting a good deal. We thought we were getting a good deal. And I, that's that's the best way to happen. That almost always only happens with a broker, in my experience. Uh, otherwise, at, at some point, one side or other feels like they overpaid or got swindled in what they paid for. And it's right. just about having perspective on it. Already give you perspective and, on it. And even though you and your brother have other businesses and concepts, this was your first one. This was the first one that kind of you got your shops and you learned about life and business oh yes so i'm sure there was was there some emotion for you and your brother like unloading these or you no know, i had been so removed from that side of the business for at least eight years focusing on sport clips okay. that uh at the point where when i'd walk in and actually order uh, a pizza from one of my restaurants maybe someone knew who i was okay. they definitely knew who my brother was but the, you know right. it, they noticed the family resemblance they had no idea right. that was who I was. They knew that there were brothers that owned it, but the sport clips were spread out over five states. So I didn't right. really go into the stores. Now, the first couple years before, and especially before we opened up Valpac, I was in the stores seven days a week with my brother. Right, right. Um. So when you're looking to make acquisitions, well, I guess with the board clips now, mm-hmm. have you had any that you decided you should sell? Any of them that didn't work out how you thought they would and you ended up selling them? Or you No, know, I haven't sold any sport clips. I can tell you we've shut down a total of three that I have first opened. And the reason we shut them down it, every single time, we we overbuilt the market and just put too many locations in there. And every time that we shut one of those down, 
well, 100% of the employees would move over to the other location. Almost all the clients would move over to the other location. So it, every right. time we closed one, it was a net win for us because we were having the same sales with half, half the operational cost, right? right? So it was a win for us. And that's why we didn't sell it because what we didn't want is to have that sport club still function there, still have this, the, those employees and those clients because at that point, then I'm competing against myself in some respect. Sure. And just with the sport clips, because a lot of locations, how do you and your brother, how do you manage it? I mean, in other words, does each store, does each location have a manager? Then there's territory managers or area managers. Is that how? Okay. Yep. We have, we have a salon manager at every location. And then we have an area manager that oversees anywhere from five to 10 locations. Yeah. That yeah. number really varies on two things. Um, their ability to manage that many geographic range. So it's much yeah. easier. And it's 10 stores. If you can get to all of them in the same day and yeah. you can't get to all of them the same day, you probably need fewer stores. So yeah. You're there, you can focus on that store. And when you're looking for acquisitions, is that mostly you, you and your brother? Is it just you or who's taking the lead on that acquisitions for more? Before, you know, we, we kind of spearhead that. I, I go find the deals. And then as soon as I get uh, the owner saying, yeah, I'm interested, I like to hand that off to my brother. So uh, we still try to have that third party impartiality. That's great. Uh, that they're going to see at every conference, right? So yeah. I have a good relationship and a lot of times I'm buying a few stores in a market that they no longer want to be in. So I'm still going to see them every year at the conferences and yep. um, stuff like that. So right. I just want that relationship between me and them to always be good, always be on the up and up and, um, you know, getting in the weeds and figuring out what the actual logistics of buying or selling something is to have someone else that is detached from that. And when you're looking to make acquisitions, it's really, is it primarily geography? You're looking at just where you're situated in geography or how are you making? You know, we're, we're more interested is, uh, are, are the stores, we're only buying cash flowing assets. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not buying fixer uppers. I don't even like, I won't even probably take a fixer upper at this point. I just want cash flow and you can buy it. As far as geography, you know, I uh, just be honest with you. I like to stay away from some blue states and I'll focus on red states. So, and there's a magnitude of reasons for that. One, employment laws and, and how litigation works. Uh, California is crazy. If, uh, if you have one brand and in the north, north part of the state, an employer does something inappropriate with a, with a, uh, employee, then every single brand gets pulled into that of the no. same brand, you know, and you're like, I, you know, I'm in, I'm, hours away. I don't even know who that person is. Why am I in this lawsuit? Then you have to pay an attorney yeah. to prove that you're not part of it. So yeah. there's yeah. states like that. Um, and then, you know, I think it's easier to staff in some of the redder states than the yeah. first and things yeah. like that. I'm more interested in, do they have enough stores to have a district manager there? Yeah. But so I'm looking for a new close of, of five or I'll do four if there's an opportunity to open up another A plus location to get me to five. But yeah. the, the the numbers don't make sense under that. They've got more than that, then that's great. The numbers make more sense. But yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing about the blue and the red is um, blues tend to be in more populated, dense areas and the rents are higher. So uh, we... Um. We like to keep our rents, you know, under 10% mm -hmm. and any months up, but we're, you know, ideally it's five, 6%. And there are, uh, some parts of our country that it's very difficult to have anything retail and not have your rent be over 10%. Because I guess your kind of your core competency, one of them is the marketing, right? Like you're, you learned early on how to market and about marketing and email marketing. And so 
right? So with the low rents, it's okay. They're not that, you know, they're not that dense, but you could drive traffic. Is that part of the thesis? That's part of- I think think there's a Goldilocks uh, equation there where you've got just enough people and you've got enough retail space that the rent isn't silly. And so when you find that that Goldilocks, and it happens, it's just, you know, it it doesn't sound exciting, but towns that have 20,000 people in it, there's 20,000 people that need haircuts. That's more what what I would service in in the middle of St. Louis, right? Sure. So being in the rural markets, your operations have to be on, on spot. You know, everyone knows everyone, and as soon as you get a bad reputation, then everyone goes to the other salon in town. Yeah, so you, you've just got to be really cautious. You've got to be the employer of choice. You've got to be the the place of choice in these tertiary markets. But I think they're the the hidden gem. Yeah, no, it makes sense. <laughs> so, in terms of you know the people that we mostly work with are owners of privately held companies, and they're looking at some kind of event or they're at an inflection point, right? And they're debating. What do I do? Do I keep growing the business? Do I sell? And what should drive that decision? And most of them are founders. Most of them are the people that started the business. And they've been at it for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. What are some of the things that you've learned? I mean, you've you've had different concepts. You've had different businesses. You've acquired some. You've sold some. Any words of wisdom? that you could depart upon them or things that they should think about or be asking themselves? I personally feel you should continue to grow your business until you've capped out your capabilities. And then at that point, you got to make a determination. Do you want to go acquire new capabilities or are you comfortable where you are? And mm-hmm. when you're comfortable where you are, then what do you do with your excess money that you would have used towards growth? And I mean, there's lots of different things you can do. Uh, ideal image for us was was one of those things, but I've got other friends that buy stake into uh, new oil wells holes and because it's passive they don't have to manage it it's not it's not another phone call they have to receive but uh as far as capabilities you know so for us to double the number of sport clips as an example the people that i'd have to manage just doubles it's four more people and my brother who handles the back office would have to hire one more person okay so i and so i have to work on having four more relationships mm-hmm in my business because I'm really uh, on a day-to-day basis only dealing with my area managers. So to double that, I only need four more do that because I have four now and I'm pretty confident I could handle four more relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And it won't be four one like it won't be four more next week. It'll happen over time. You'll you'll integrate them and you'll Yeah. We have a, a very very strong team culture. So, uh, you know, we just brought on a or promoted a new area manager. I, I've done next to none of her training. The other area managers are like, let me get in there and train her. Yeah, let me. And you know, the truth of the matter is, they're in the they're in the trenches every day, so they know exactly the ins mm-hmm. and outs of what they need to know and how they need to do it to have a good work life balance. You know, I come in and I just say, these are my expectations. If you didn't know, I'm already being a manager for me. Let's reiterate that. And I give my area managers one directive, and it's the same directive every year: is that everyone underneath them makes needs to make more money than they did last year. Because we're all we're all in a performance based pay plan. So however you want to skin that that cat, your goal and how you track your success is, are your team members making more money than they did last year? Mm. That's the only thing I care about is continuing everyone's wealth. You know, you started this podcast by talking about recruiting, the importance of recruiting. And now this is coming full circle. That's what a lot of it is, right? I mean, the more people you talk to, the more people you get to know, the better people you're going to get on your team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got 
got uh, I've got three children, and my oldest is my twelve year old daughter, and I'm constantly coaching her that the quality of your life is directly correlated to the quality of the relationships you have, and it it, it, it it's true for work and it's true for yep. personal. You know, yep. focused on all the relationship, uh, relationship, but much further. You know, yep. uh, and a great quote I heard last week is: "If you want to go somewhere fast, you got to do it by yourself. But if you want to go somewhere far, you got to do it with somebody." Ah. Really good. Yeah. Jesse, this is excellent. This is, I think this is a good way to end this. I, do you have anything else you wanted to say or to part? No, Larry, Larry, I appreciate your time and willing to listen yeah. to my story. I appreciate it. Yeah. And really, thank you. Thanks for all your time, your words of wisdom and uh, best wishes. And we'll thank stay you. in touch. Okay. Yeah. And if you ever anything, just reach out to me. Terrific. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guest and their insights. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.